0: This is a momentous Sunday. We are delighted to be able to participate in the celebration of the anniversary of uh, the establishment of Intervarsity Campus Ministry at, at William Mary. and Mary. And as you've heard, we uh, at least uh, indirectly are, are celebrating uh, an anniversary within our own church because Intervarsity was significant in getting that ministry started, the campus at William and Mary starting this church, and we continue to be there for the campus as well. That's not the only anniversary that we also celebrate on this day, but each year on this Sunday, uh, throughout the Western world anyway, there is another celebration. It's a celebration in remembrance of the Reformation uh, that, that had taken place in Europe and then spread uh, and has uh, shaped much of the world, uh, and has shaped much of the world for years. The world at that time had begun escaping the the darkness of the Dark Ages, and yet the darkness continued to reign in the church. For during the Dark Ages, ignorance and corruption began to be the the norm. People's faith was, was superficial and superstitious, and people were hungering for more. God working in the hearts of some during that time. There were some flashes of light, men like John Huss and John Wycliffe, but nothing that brought about stability and hope and true, genuine, deep faith. But then there was a turn. and God being at work brought about through a number of circumstances, a number of people, all simultaneously what we now know as the Reformation, where the church found God again, or rather, God reclaimed His church. And this morning, I want to do something a little different than I normally do. I, I invite you, as, we, as, I, as I'm talking here right now, to open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 22. What's different is the text this morning will be uh, a short one, And it may seem, at least for a time, to be more of a a pretext. The pretext is when the pastor gets up, reads a passage, and then talks for however long he feels like talking, and have absolutely nothing to do with what he read. (laughs) We will not do that this morning, but for a while, it may feel that way. We're going to come back, and we'll bring the application. But all along, we will be uh, considering a couple of other passages as we work our way back to the text that we'll read here in just a moment. The other thing that we want to do is just to lay the foundation and relay the foundation that God reestablished at that time. The best way for us to celebrate what God did at that time is not only to remember what he did, but to continue to be plugged in to the very things that he did then as well. Because what he did was not only for a time, but for for this age until we are with him. And he is reigning fully, completely, where there is no sin and no brokenness. The passage this morning that I want us to consider, Proverbs twenty-two, twenty-eight. 28. Hear the word of the Lord. Through the wisdom of Solomon, or through God's grace to Solomon, Solomon conveys this wisdom to us. Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we come this morning, and we give thought to, to your ways, and we give ear to your voice through this word and others that we will consider. We pray that in accordance with your promise that your spirit would speak to us, that you would encourage us, you would direct us, you would guide us, you would remind us of your promises and ultimately draw our attention to you. For in you, we understand what love is, we behold glory and see our purpose. And so, Lord, while we endeavor to look at your word, I pray that you would be at work in us and then through us, that all people called by your name would be joined together in declaring your praises. I pray all of this in the name of Christ, who you have given us, and who is the embodiment of your being, of your way, of your love. Theologian Richard Muow, in his oddly-titled book, Calvinist, A Calvinist in a Las Vegas Airport, talks about a movie that has come to mind, a movie scene in particular. The movie is titled Hardcore, and it's written and directed by a, a director or a producer named Paul Schrader, who had grown up in a staunch Dutch reformed home in western Michigan, graduated from Calvin College, and then has rejected and railed against his upbringing through almost all of his art for at least up until the time of Muau writing the book. Schrader's apparently a very gifted director, but his movies tend to be very dark. In addition to the movie Hardcore, that uh, the scene that it uh, comes from that we'll, that we'll introduce in a moment. He also was the director of such movies as Taxi Driver and American Gigolo, things that clearly are not what you would find at a Dutch Reform Sunday Night Fellowship movie. <laughs> Nor do we plan to show them here anytime soon. And Muell says that he does not recommend the movie Hardcore for anybody speaking spiritual- uh, insight, spiritual edification. But in his own words, he says that there is one scene that he has regularly pondered when he makes his own theological reflections. And then in Muow's words, he says this. Jake Van Dorn, a pious, reformed elder, played by George C. Scott, is sitting in the Las Vegas airport with a thoroughly pagan young woman named Nikki. Jake's teenage daughter has run away to California and gotten involved in the pornography business and has set out to find her. His initial efforts thus far have failed, but he managed to enlist the help of Nikki, a young prostitute who knows his daughter. They have just followed a lead to Las Vegas, but having discovered discovered that the wayward daughter is no longer there, they're moving on in their search. Now, as the scene comes, they're sitting in the Las Vegas airport, and the conversation is about to ensue. As they're sitting in the boarding area waiting for the plane, Nikki informs Jake that she considers him to have a very negative outlook on life and is obviously connected. It's obviously connected, she thinks, to his religious beliefs. So she asks, What kind of church do you belong to? He says, It's a reformed denomination, he responds. It's a group that believes in tulip. And the conversation continues, which is amazing in itself. But it is a movie, after all. And so the dialogue in the movie goes like this: After he was Jake, uh, who is George C. Scott, gruffly responding that, Nikki's response is, "What the?" And I'll leave it to the rest of your imagination uh, as to how it is in the movie. And Jake says, I- "It's an acro- anachronism. It comes from the te- Canons of Dort. Every letter stands for a different belief. Like, are you sure you want to hear this?" Nikki says, "Yeah." go on, I'm a Venusian myself. And Jake proceeds to explain each of the letters of the acronym of TULIP. And after he has explained all of this, somewhat perplexed, Nikki looks at him and she says, and I thought I was something up. And Jake says, well, I admit it's a little confusing when you look at it from the outside. You have to try to look at it from the inside. And Richard Muell looks at that scene and sees that as not very far off on the way that we tend to describe our faith to people unfamiliar with it, the Reformed tradition and the planks that we believe. And he says, having the benefit of having seen the movie and now thought in preparation for writing a book, he's had the opportunity to say, well, how would I answer that question? And he says, I would answer it in a very different way i would not begin with tulip and in his point he would begin with another another point of of historic doctrine but the question that is before me this morning that i want to consider with is how do i or maybe i'm posing it to you how would you answer the question those who have been part of a reformed church for some time those of you who have experienced us or another reformed church but that's not your tradition How would you describe it to somebody else who wants to know what us odd people are kind of like? Or maybe you're here and you have no idea what it means at all, and this will be the first introduction to the concept uh, uh, this morning. That's really uh, what's on my mind, is is to answer the question, who are we? Now, I realize for most of you, that question will not be asked specifically to you, at least not very often, unless you're a little weird. But it was asked of me, the first night that I was at the church I served previously, one of the elder's wives came to me and she said very simply, what does it mean to be Reformed? Now I'd been on the job for a few hours, it was a fellowship supper, it was my first day working, I thought I was just coming to eat and then just kind of watch. And she asked me this profound question. As I got to know her later, I realized just how uh, tremendous of a question it was because this was a lady who was biblically knowledgeable, theologically astute. She's coming and giving me books and quoting Martin Lloyd Jones. And that's just, I mean, that's not your normal person. And she's coming and asking, what does it mean to be reformed? And so she elaborated a little bit and she said, the reason she's asking that is because someone who was a member of another church in that town had come to her and in description saying that that other church, our church is reformed. Yours is not the one that I was pastoring, and so we can't have fellowship with you. Sadly, I I understood all too quickly because one of the traits that sometimes is associated with us is ugliness, and that's a very ugly statement. And so I tried to be pithy and say, well, just go back and tell her that your pastor's reformed. He just doesn't want to be obnoxious about it. She looked at me like she didn't know what I was talking about, which I realized was a good thing. But it still leaves the dilemma out there. What does it mean to be reformed? And so I thought about that for a while. And she suggested it might be a good thing to have uh, for a Sunday school or Sunday evening when I was teaching. And so I thought I would do it one Sunday evening. And as I thought about it, I realized there was more. So it was a series. There's a number of things uh, that we can describe. Where do we begin? How do we describe who we are? How do we continue to live in a way that is not only faithful but fruitful in our faith. And as I was thinking about it, I realized that the answer was really not that difficult. And to describe where we are or the foundations of what it means to be a Reformed church it has been given to us already, and it comes to us in church history through the point of the Reformation. Those of you who are, are students of the Reformation or perhaps have heard of it, you've heard of the, the five solas of the Reformation. And I realized that gives us a tremendous foundation, and an easy description at least when we do it in English and not in Latin, to explain who we are that not only is a good description, but it actually points us that we're living today so that we can live for today and not live in the past. And while there are five of them, I realized through my study that they really can be summarized well in in really three distinct points that were essential recoveries, principles, values recovered at the time of the Reformation, They were true from all eternity, they're clear in all of the scripture, and yet they were covered by piles and piles of rubble of tradition that were uncovered during that time that we need to make sure remain brushed off and visible and lived out. The first one of those is very simply that to be a Reformed Christian means that we are people who live for the glory of God. Reformers, those who are writing in Latin, call it soli deo gloria. In other words, that the bent of our lives, the goal, the purpose, the motivation is that we, in understanding we exist, to glorify God through relationship with Him, recognition of who He is. Now, the concept of the glory of God is one of those that we, we say, but it's, just, it's difficult to define. And so it's a natural question to ask, what is the glory of God? While I won't be able to give an exhaustive definition, both for time and lack of intellectual capacity, I hope that I can help at least a little bit to, to point us in the right direction. I think the simple aspect is the, the glory of God is just the radiance of who He is. You think about it from an illustration this way. is we, you know, You're taught growing up, don't look directly at the sun. It's not good for you. It's told that clearly during an eclipse. I don't know that it's any better for you when it's not eclipsed to look directly at the sun because inevitably you will, you will burn something out. But we know the sun is there because we see the rays of light. We see the radiances of the gases that are burning, of the power of, of something that is too big to behold, too powerful, too dangerous for us. But because we not only see the rays of light, but by those rays of light, we can see everything else. We know the sun is there. We know of its power. We know of its strength. In a sense, we know of its, of its glory. God is the same way. God exists. And when we talk about glorifying God, it's not that we glorify God when we come and we sing praises to him. As if God has a little bit of glory, but if we can get everybody loud enough and sing the right words, then God is glorified as if he is a politician that needs a newspaper writing for him. The more people that give testimonies toward him, the more glory he receives. God has glory in himself, his being. When we talk about the glory of God, we're just simply talking about recognizing who God is. And though the scriptures tell us through the Old Testament that we can't see God directly, not only because He is a spirit, but because He is so powerful, so holy, so majestic, as we're told of those who wanted to see God, if you see God directly, you die. But all around him, nevertheless, we do see the radiances of his glory. We see the beauty of the creation which he made by speaking it into existence. We have the beauty of the relationships that we have others that are expressions of his gifts to us. You have gifts and talents. All around us, we see evidence of the work and the reality of God. And those are the radiances of his glory. And we glorify God when we simply recognize who he is and what he has done. God is passionate about this himself. In Isaiah, we see repeatedly God talking about the priority of his life, and he speaks of his own glory. And all the things that he does, even the fact that he calls a people to himself, making them his own, he says he does it for the sake of his own glory. Isaiah forty-eight eleven, the Lord says this, For my own sake, for my own sake I do this. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And See, God at that point is telling his people, in and, a and time of needed reformation uh, at, at that point as well, he's saying, look, I am the ultimate. Now, you and I say that it's arrogant, but God, who else would he be able to point to? He is the ultimate, and so by pointing that out, it's a grace, it's a gift, it helps us to understand. And he turns our attention to him and says that all of life is geared to be found in me. But rather than robbing us of our identity or our dignity, that actually gives us more because we who believe in Christ, who have been called by God's name, who are now declared to be his children, we are children of the one who is the ultimate. We are the objects of the affection of the one who created all, who provides all, who sustains all. And so as we live and we recognize who he is, we realize our purpose, our identity, our dignity only is enhanced one of the things that was recovered the first thing that we need to realize is that our lives need to be oriented toward the glory of God to behold it to uphold it the second plank was simply it was this was simply recognizing the authority of the scriptures the reformers used the phrase sola scriptura recognizing that god's word god has spoken And that gives us direction in life informs our understanding of how the world functions, of who God is, who we are, how we are broken, how we may be restored, and how we may live that. The psalmist beautifully says in Psalm 119, the whole chapter is really about God's Word, but Psalm 119, 160, the psalmist really, I think, gives a great explanation of why the authority of Scripture is essential for our lives. Because he declares this, the sum of your Word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. In other words, we need to live our lives based upon truth. We all are seeking truth. Wherever we feel like we are seeking, we are seeking truth. Very few of us get up this morning and find out, what kind of lie can I follow this morning? You know, I know if that's true, let's find out something that is iffy. We all take step after step based upon what we believe to be true. What the psalmist recognizes by God's inspiration is God's very word is truth. It's the truth that is the foundation. It is the truth that is the direction. It is the truth that is the authority for our lives. We can be informed by many of things. But all things need to be seen in accordance with God's word. And the last I would simply declare of the points is that, that recovered is the centrality of the gospel. Now, for those of you who are are history students, you realize I'm truncating three things, but I do think they belong because there really are three points and three of the solas that fit in here. Reformers talked about sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, and solus Christus, Christ alone. But if you look at the three of them together, that's the points of the gospel itself. Because the gospel is that we are made right with God, not because we have become good, not because we've tried hard, Not because of anything in ourselves, but by God, who is gracious. He granted us a gift of faith that we may believe in what he has done to redeem us, to reconcile us, to provide for us, and to grant us salvation. See, that had been lost. People were striving in their superstition, striving frantically, trying to figure a way that they could appease God, who they knew to be powerful to get right with God. And so they would offer up types of sacrifices through penance or sacrificing their time or energy, doing things that would punish themselves that they thought would be accept, make them more acceptable to God. They would try to be better, hoping that they would be good enough for God, not realizing that it was a futile exercise, although they certainly experienced the futility of it because they never would know. And so it wasn't until the Scripture, the authority of Scripture was brought back to bear and declared and reminded us that it's not about what we do. It's about who God is and what he has done. Paul expresses it very clearly for us in Ephesians 2. When he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, It's, it's the gift of God. Paul elsewhere, particularly in Romans 5, explains to us, it's not just this nebulous faith that sometimes we hear about in our culture, as long as you have faith. Well, faith is not substantive. Faith is a vehicle to something that is substantive. And the substance that we have faith in that we believe is God's gift in Jesus Christ. Because we're told over and again, because he loved us, made himself nothing, coming here to be one of us, taking upon himself not only our experience, but all of our guilt. And as he's weighed down and crushed by that, he went to death, paying the punishment that we deserve, the penalty that we deserve, that we now are set free because the penalty has been paid, and rising to life to give us hope and to give us life. The recovery of the gospel that we hear so often has been lost in times in history and is in danger at times of being lost as well in our day, in our church in our lives. This brings us back to our text. The text that I read is Solomon's wisdom. It says, do not remove or do not move the ancient landmarks or boundary markers laid by your forefathers. Solomon was writing both spiritual and practical. It's just wisdom that we are to live our lives by. What had happened during the time of the Reformation is that the boundary markers that had been ignored, removed, were recovered and put in their proper place. The challenge of this verse to you and to me is that we be aware of where these landmarks have been placed so that we remember our heritage in Christ, Our identity, which is in Christ. Our hope, which is in Christ. Our future, which is in Christ. And that we don't move them in any way. Now, the natural question would be how do you move them? I mean, God planted them and they were fully established. And how do you move something that God put there? In one sense, the answer is you can't because what God established, nothing can be changed. But they can be covered up, they can be buried, or they can be ignored. There are practical ways in which we do that. Even if we are fully aware of these things, it's possible for us to move them or ignore them by substituting for them or supplementing them. For example, the first pillar is that we are to be a people who live for the glory of God. But if you are like me, it is a temptation every day to live for the glory of myself. I realized even this morning that was just so present because I was trying to do something that I don't normally do, do it in a way, try to talk about the Reformation and make it interesting and not a lecture, and have some spiritual benefit that would go away not just being informed but encouraged. And realizing my own inadequacies, I'm thinking, well, then people might not like. They may not be impressed if I, if I bomb." And I'm confronted with the fact that the forefront of my mind was not that I get to speak to you about the glory of God and what He has done in history, and what he's promised you now is, like a junior high girl, I'm thinking, "Do you like me?" I've described my own struggle this way, as I really do, I do live for the glory of God. That is my passion and what I want. I know God is, and I want Christ to be king and to be seen as king. But my struggle is I just want to be governor. You own it all, just give me some. But I realize my hope is not found in trying to carve out a niche for myself, but to live within the framework of the pillars that have been established for us and recovered in the time of the Reformation and realize that that's where my hope is. That's where my identity is. That's where my peace lies. The authority of Scripture is something that we really don't question in our church here. And yet there is a constant pull in our culture and in our hearts to follow whatever the trends of wisdom are of the day to begin to look at the Scripture and see whether they measure up to the wisdom, whether it's in academia, culture, media, begin to put God's Word under the authority of our current trends. And even more of a pull is to look at the Scriptures and make the authority of my life not what God has recorded for us, but my own experience. God has said this, but in my experience let my experience or the experience of others who I trust, sometimes practically speaking, trust more than God at an immediate time to inform my values, my identity, and my life. It's a very strong temptation. As far as the removing of the boundary for the gospel, while we use the word freely, We have a constant temptation, not only from an external pressure, but internal pressure to somehow replace the gospel or substitute our own efforts, our own goodness, our own morality, as if somehow that will be sufficient. We may run back to the promise of God once we realize that's foolish, but day in and day out, the temptation is to live on the basis of my own merit or demerit, which continues to drive me to despair and to foolish hope. And the promise is there all along in the gospel. The solas of the Reformation, even if I've been referred to them for a moment, are known not only just as the solas or five points, but they're known as the pillars of the Reformation. I don't profess to be have any expertise in architecture or in construction. When I do mission trips, my role in in construction is usually, Dennis, go get something and bring it over here. You look like you can haul that, so bring that. And then the other instruction is, can you get away? Can you get out of the way? That's my constructional expertise. But I do know that pillars have different kinds of function. It's important that we consider them in light of the way that they're intended. If you drive throughout the South, you will find beautiful homes, some of them old antebellum homes that have beautiful large columns on the front that just add to the stateliness of the home. It it adds a, a majestic feel. But from what I understand is that From an actual architectural standpoint, those columns do nothing other than add to the aesthetic. They have no functional value other than to hold up the roof on the porch. You remove those columns, one or all of them, and the only thing that's coming down is the roof on the porch. The only functional problem is if you visit the home and it's a rainy day, you get wet. But the people inside are still sound, still comfortable, still living in a stately home, even if it may be slightly less attractive. On the other hand, there's uh, architecture we see in the examples of the, the ancient Greece, Greeks and the Parthenon, where the pillars themselves are weight-bearing pillars. You remove one of the pillars, and your structure is in danger of collapse. These pillars of the Reformation are not the pillars that are decorations that distinguish us as Christians from other Christians. The fact is, those of you who have different traditions, backgrounds, or, or, or just studied Christianity and, and couldn't tell, a reformed from a deformed, <laughs> would, I hope, listen to those three things and say, what's the big deal? Doesn't everybody believe that? I hope so. One of the reasons I think that it's beautiful to start there as opposed to some of the other finer distinctions that we have. It's because it's a constant reminder that while we tend to narrow things down and exclude people, God's church that is established through Jesus Christ is a large umbrella. It's important that we remember what we have in common with believers of other traditions first before we worry about the things that are distinct. For our sake, for their sake, and for the sake of a watching world. But these pillars are common to many believers. But they are in all cases necessary for our lives to be built. They are the foundation to remove any of those from our lives. We are in danger of a spiritual collapse and following the spiritual collapse, while we may be able to cope like many people do, and and I've done in my own life at times, we are then in danger of our own lives. But because of God's grace to us, in various ages, He has revealed to us foundation of our lives. He has pulled it out of the rubble when it has been covered over. And he has revealed them to us. Our call now is to live these things, to uh, adorn them in our lives, and then to live our lives. Which leads me to the very last thing, just to encourage. It's how we relate to these truths. See, there's a danger sometimes in our circles that I think were exhibited both in the story of the character played by George C. Scott and the woman in our previous community who asked the lady in our church or told her that we weren't reformed enough, which is sort of like not being pregnant enough, that is really ugly and is dead. And the reason that that happens is because the people who may doctrinally agree with us and be profound in their ability to explain it, they tend to live in the shadow of the Reformation. They believe the points. They can define the finer points. They identify with a particular point in history and try to relive that and bring everybody back to a point in history using the very same truths, but they live in a shadow. There is no light. But I believe the call on our lives. My hope for us as a church and as individuals, because it's as individuals hold to these that the church remains strong, and as churches remain strong, that the church universal will remain strong and not plunge into a dark age. We live in light of the gospel by looking at these points and realizing the orientation of my life is to the glory of God. The authority of my life is to be in conformity, not only informed, but formed by God's word, and that I am continually clinging to the hope of the gospel, just as we're instructed to do, because the Apostle Paul also says to the Colossians, just as you received him, so live in him, so walk in him, so the gospel is not just how we get saved, but the way we live. And so if we are living each day with the hope of the gospel, realizing that's my only hope, being directed by the scripture, both that I can see myself and the way I'm going, and seeing the glory of God in both of those and on all the things around us. Now, with those things shaping our lives, living those lives in the community where we live, in the culture that really exists right now, we are no longer under a shadow, but we are living in light of the Reformation, and we will be lights to this community. Our lives will point to the Lord. It's not only where we need to build. That's what God calls us to in the first place. And so I invite you and challenge you to be a people who live in the light of the Reformation that God would receive all praise and glory. Let me pray and we'll stand and sing our praises to our God. Father, we do thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for all that you have recovered. We thank you that you have promised something that is hard for us to believe. But you have also promised us that it is you who is at work within us that will keep us to the end. Lord, not only may you keep us, but by your grace, may you keep us faithful. Reveal yourself to us. Remind us of your love and grace and glory. We may be a people people marked by God. We pray in the name of Christ, who is himself the head of the body, and the perfect representation of the image of the Father.